Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, sometimes on this show we have an idea for an episode and it's immediately apparent that it's going to work. I've got to be frank with you, some other episodes aren't as immediately appealing. The idea for this episode came from an historian friend who said there's a self-storage unit on the A40 that you've simply got to get to. And I suppose I thought about trying to do an interview about self-storage, and I wasn't really sold on it. And then my friend said, you know, they put things on their roof. And of course I asked him what sort of things, and his reply changed my mind completely. And I'm glad it did, because alongside a lot of physical belongings, there's also 50 years of great stories stored at a place called Vanguard. It is the 23rd of May 2014, I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, stood out me. See things of the air, land, and the sea. Some creep, some saw. Down the road, jam brand store. My heart aches for some far off place. Hello, hello. I've made this pilgrimage because I've heard great things about a rather unusual business that's being conducted near Perivale, near the A40. In fact, as I look out of the office window here, I can see traffic heading in towards town. It's a large building I'm in. There's a TARDIS on the roof, which probably sets the tone quite well for today's show. I'm at Vanguard Holdings, and with me, Mac McCulloch. He's the chairman of Vanguard Holdings Limited, and Will McCulloch. He's the newly appointed, fairly, fairly fresh managing director. Hello, you both. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me here today. We're looking at storage today. That's the that's the name of the business that you're in. And, and storage is incredibly successful, relatively new industry in this country. Although I think we might be going back a little further than some of the self-storage units. They're celebrating sort of 20-ish years in business. We're going to be going much further back than that today. I've heard lots of interesting things about this place, particularly from people connected with history and, and military and things like that. So perhaps we could start by sketching out what the business is, Mac. The business now is self-storage, but before then, we started off in 1964, on the 1st of August, just three of us with very little tackle, had to hire everything, and three of us went out moving machinery. And by the mid-80s, we were the largest industrial removal company in the land, employing 470, with a fleet of 100 vehicles and about 50 cranes, and it was going like a rocket. It was terrific fun. High risk, great fun. It was all about downtime. If anybody wants to move a factory, the first question they ever ask is, what's the downtime? Because a machine that's not actually producing the goods is a dead machine and there's no money in it, there's no profit in it. So they wanted their machines moved very quickly, back up and running. And it was the same, especially in the newspaper industry. We got a a very early on good reputation in the newspaper industry. People would say to us, like the Manchester Evening News was the first big one, They wanted to move the whole of their composing department, all their production machinery, across from Cross Street to Deansgate. And it had to be moved from when the football edition came off at 5.30 in the evening. And it had to be up and running by about 11 o'clock on the Sunday. 
and it was 400 tonnes and officers for 500. It was a big, big requirement. And luckily, we have a fantastic bunch of men. Give them a challenge and they'll rise to it. I don't think they've ever been beaten in 50 years. A fabulous bunch of guys. And uh, we got stuck into that job and it went like a rocket. It was finished by 11.30 on the Sunday. The managing director, Mr Harvey, wrote a fabulous letter to us thanking us very much indeed. And from that moment on, newspaper company after newspaper company came knocking on our door. Not just newspaper company, production companies. They'd heard that we could move them very quickly with minimum downtime. And we had people like De Souter. We moved them to France, to Italy, to Germany, Ibstein in Germany, and up north, up into Spennymoor in County Durham. They closed their big one down at Harmsworth. And we moved the whole lot in five weeks, and had it up and running at the other end. It was a lot of lot of equipment. The size and scale of the sort of jobs you're talking about here don't seem to be reflected in the office that is depicted on the office wall just over there. I should say, by the way, uh, this is a very luxurious-feeling establishment. It feels like <laughs> success goes on here, you know. There's a picture on the wall. It's got a, what looks like a 60s or maybe even 50s car parked outside, a building which essentially seems to be just about as big as the front door and window that we can see there. Is this where you were carrying out these operations from? That's where we very first started, yes. That was... Uh, We rented that little Weybridge hut from British Railways. It was 150 square foot, right on the pavement on Earls Court Road, heading north, one way heading north. We were there for four years altogether, and it was humming. It was terrific fun. And we actually painted that office, as it looks now in that photograph, on a Sunday, a nice warm Sunday. We painted it, the three of us. And we were sitting having a drink on Sunday afternoon having a look at it and this Irishman walked up the road on the other side and he stopped after our little hut, undid his flies and peed through the letterbox we couldn't get at him because the traffic was came up in waves and it was the wrong wave to get across and we finally got across and we dragged him away we said you dirty what are you doing he said oh but Jesus I do this every Sunday it's on my way up to the Radnor Arms I'm coming from the Kensington Arms and he said I always thought the place was empty I said, it bloody isn't. No, we've moved in. Oh, we won't happen to do it again, so don't you worry. Oh, I said, if you do do it again, you'll be in big trouble. So that was our little office, and we had so much fun there. When my partner Ian and his wife, they'd got engaged and they went off to a holiday, and I'd been down to see a job down at the Bournemouth Machine Tool Company. Lovely job, smashing job. In those days, it was thousands of pounds. In those days, it would be tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, Just to dwell on that, inflation from that day until now is 2,780% in labour charges. That's how much it's increased in 50 years. Thanks to our rather weak politicians and our very strong unions and rather weak management. And they wonder why we've priced ourselves out of the heavy machinery market, right out of it. But anyway, I saw the job and Ian and Judy were away and the managing director announced, Mr. McCullough, the board of directors would like to come and see you to discuss this move. We like your quotation. I said, fine, uh, we're coming up to see the machine tool exhibition at Earl's Court. I said, fine, I'll meet you there. I'd love to take you all to lunch. No, 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 Mr. McCullough, we want to come and see you. And nothing would dissuade them. They had to come and see us. And I had a temporary secretary in, and we said, quick, paint the inside. I'll shoot out and get some more mugs. And we've got a big mug to make the tea. It's pouring with rain. And the managing director knocked on the door, and I opened it. And he said, oh, Mr. McCullough, I've come with my board of directors. 
And I said, fine, well, we can probably get two of you in here, and if the rest could queue up outside, we'll give them a cup of tea. And the cups of tea were being poured, handed down to them, and the spray coming off the road, it was embarrassing. There was nothing we could do. And anyway, they wrote to us and thanked us for our hospitality and said that they had decided on another company. And which I'm not surprised. We could have done the job. We could have eaten the job. But by that time, we'd already established quite a good reputation with some of the other companies. We moved Saunders Valves and Hereford in a record time. We'd done all the newspaper presses at Barrow's newspapers by then. But anyway, that was a job lost. But it was fun uh, trying to get it and try to recover it. But it, it was a goner. And it didn't worry us too much. I'm conscious that in the 50-year history of the company, well, you appear kind of in the last year in terms of the, yes, the, the yeah, managing yeah. director. So I need to artificially bring you into the chronology here, even yeah, though okay, uh, you, you're a contribution. When did you first get involved in a hands-on way in the company? Well, I mean, I've, I've always been involved since I was a kid. I mean, Vanguard is very much a part of the family. But in terms of actually being directly involved in the business, only in the last two years. Uh-huh. OK, you come in at a management level, but you've seen it evolve. Yeah, I mean, I came in as a, as a director, but after about a year, which I thought was a bit premature, Dad said, you know, you should take the reins. So quite happy to. The man before me here, Mac, I can't believe you're... I'm not sure if I should mention your age on air, but I couldn't believe it when you told me. Um, Full of uh, energy and and vitality. That makes you sound like a a prized dog or something, doesn't it? (laughs) Full of vitality, glossy coat. Um, Is it uh, in any way daunting to be taking over the reins of this company? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a very hard act to follow, my dad. I mean, we're very proud of him. And it's uh, going to be tough, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can grow it. So to use that business cliche, you've hit the ground running. And what what sort of things have you learnt in this first little while? Well, a lot, really, because prior to this, I was was at RBS in finance, specifically looking at foreign exchange for private equity clients. And, um, you know, there you're an employee. And suddenly here you're the employer and you've got to learn about everything, everything. I mean, from drainage of sites to leaky roofs to employment law you know, to health and safety, all this stuff that, you know, as an employee, you never, you never learn about. So I've learned an awful lot in the last couple of years. And that, I know a lot of employers complain about just the volume of paperwork and legislation and the requirements upon you as an employer. Do you find that stifling, I wonder? Yeah, I think it can be. I mean, certainly we've had a couple of pretty spurious claims, you know, quite recently, you know, from injury lawyers and, you know, people that have missed a step on a ladder, for example. Well, they, they ask for serious amounts of money for, for what is, you know, rubbish. But the, the problem is, is that is, I think it's the culture now that people get thousands of pounds for, for putting in a claim. People are giving away free iPads if your claim gets accepted. So it really encourages people to make those claims. Well, you know what, what we should do, actually, I've, I've just worked out how we make the chronology work here is uh, we've got a pretty vivid picture of the company in its very early formative years what is the company now how does it differ from that picture and then we'll fill in the the in-between well i think it's very different i mean it's it's incredibly different i mean the the similarity is that we still have the same properties but apart from that i mean we're not doing any of the sort of high profile active work that we were doing in the past and i think nowadays it would be very difficult to do that stuff in terms of the health and safety and I'm not sure there's the market there for you know as many players as, as there are there now. Well, because there's not as much heavy machinery, heavy industry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I think self-storage, which we're into now, and document storage, is probably a better business 
for now, I'd have thought. And the helipad, although that's that's not such a steady business. But the um, self storage is a, is a strong business because you know you, you get a building, you fill it, and it's really your your main risks. Are, you know, if you have a fire or as long as you keep people's stuff safe, they're happy. I didn't know about this helipad business. It might explain why there's a TARDIS landed on the roof. I don't know. I suspect they may be separate. We've been promised a tour of Vanguard Holdings, and I'd love to take you up on that. I have an inkling that we're going to encounter some uh, interesting stuff stored here. Where is the best place to start? Right where we are at the moment. We'll go down to the yard. I'll take you across to the main warehouse. That was our machinery store. We've got uh, two 20-ton overhead cranes in there, which are really... Tired, not tired, but uh, bored, I should say, compared to what we used to do. That used to be seven days a week, 12 hours a day, non-stop, machinery coming in, machinery going out, and it's all dried up, sadly. But fortunately, we sidestepped off into self-storage, document storage. We run a helicopter set up down in the Isle of Dogs. We've got a nice site there on the river. And fortunately, again, all our sites are freehold. So we're not paying rents or any other outlets. We know we've got the strength of a freehold there. We can't get a landlord starting to try to be clever with service charges. So we're very fortunate on that one. And that was all earned by our activities in the machinery-moving, factory-moving business. I would like to know, um, because you, you come from a military background, don't you? What was the step back into, uh, well, moving things around, I suppose? Well, I came out, I was... Uh, Started off in the uh, Royal Tank Regiment, two years national service. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Most people actually will admit it was fun. And it didn't do anybody any harm. It taught them discipline. It taught them punctuality, all the things that are important. Um, And they all came out better for it. So I had a good time in the Royal Tank Regiment. I then joined the SAS, 21 SAS, which is a Territorial Army Regiment. And had a thoroughly enjoyable there, time there too. We did all the basic training, and then we went into parachute jumping into various European countries, especially Denmark and uh, France and Germany. And that was a weekend, and I used to use the job then, which was working for British Railways before I started Vanguard. Uh, it kept the weekends apart, and uh, it was fun. So much variety going on here. <laughs> Every, pretty much every sentence you say makes me think, oh, we've got an episode there, we've got an episode. We should make a start on our tour. tour. On our tour, yeah, no problems. Even before we leave the office, uh, there's documentation of the, the history here. Because you, you guys are putting together a, a book to celebrate the 50 right, years yeah. of, of the business. So I can imagine you're, you're sifting through all the photos of various stages of the company. Here we've got the early 70s. What are we seeing here? Uh, that's our first freehold depot. It used to be the Swan Laundry in Blythe Road, Olympia. And we moved in there in 1968. And you can see the fleet was beginning to grow at an alarming rate. We yes, um, how many have we got there? Uh, we've got about 20 there. But we've got cranes out in the street. And in those days, neighbours never complained. I couldn't believe it. The big Atkinson vehicles, when you start them up, we've got two of them there. They smoke like mad. This is an Atkinson here, that one. That's an Atkinson. A very famous make. It's got a very famous engine, a Gardner engine which is still being used throughout the marine world, the Gardner engine. But the one thing it does, it smokes like hell in the morning uh, when it first starts off. And in, on one occasion, we were parked around A&O Road, and a, one of our, our vehicles, uh, Atkinson, was pointing towards an air brick. And it was about 6.30 in the morning, and a chap came rushing up in a dressing gown and said, you're guessing my family out, you're guessing my family out. And we went running around the corner, and there every window in the house was open, and there was smoke coming out of every window. 
<laughs> and we profusely apologized. We switched the engine off and they kept the windows open and they went away. Not one serious complaint. Just enough. We had to apologize and that was enough. Well, these are some uh, attractive looking vehicles. If, you, if you're into your vehicles, you'll already probably know what a, an Atkinson is. For those who don't, it looks to me like a rig of the period. It's got a big radiator on the front with the uh, the A logo. And the windshield, I guess, is quite unusual. It looks like the thing's wearing uh, aviator goggles or something. And what, what's this? In the street, we can see uh, some sort of a crane. Is that one of the things we're going to be looking at? That's a Coles crane. These are two 12,000-gallon fuel tanks. And in those days, the, you know the watch it was somebody looking over the wall, just eyes and a nose, watch it. About five years before then, there was a huge explosion in Flixborough when a thing called psychoexaline exploded. Bye-bye, Flixborough. And the papers were full of it. So I thought it was kind of a warped sense of humour. On the bottom of that tank, we put a watch it sign, psychoexaline. And that was it. Nothing happened for three, four years. And one morning, at about 6.30 in the morning, fire brigades, police, service people rushed up and said, we're evacuating the whole area. I said, why is that? And they said, psychoexaline. <laughs> the notice had been there for three or four years. And I said, we were just testing your powers of observation. And gentlemen, you have failed miserably. This has been there for three or four years, and you've only just spotted it. And they said, oh, oh, would you mind painting it out? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the world you're describing differs somewhat. <laughs> yes. Um, let's uh, let's head out now into. Uh, oh, I mean, this is a very plush uh, management suite. I could happily live here. That's an interesting bit of kit. Yes. What have we got here? That is a bottle filler. So what we're looking at at the moment is a glass display case with. If you were looking at this, you might think it's a small yep. drum from a washing machine yep. or something like that I on its side. It's a beautifully made. Uh, bottle washer, forty head bottle washer made by Mr. Dave Unwin. As you can see above, Dave manufactured this and it actually works. He's producing little bottles that will fill up and be spat out. The little mo- electric motors are made by him as well. The whole thing was made by him. And he's a very special guy. And unfortunately, he's not at all well. And he had to take warfarin, which is a pretty powerful medicine. And the surgeon told him, or the doctor told him, look, David, if you cut yourself, you could have a problem stopping the bleeding. Oh, right, it's a blood thinning agent, isn't it? And all those tools on the wall are sharp tools, if you know what I mean, grinders, knives, guillotines, all that sort of stuff. And he eventually said, oh, I'll have to give it away. He didn't want to give it back to the manufacturers, and he said, I know a company that will look after it for me and display it, and they can have it Vanguard. And so we said, right, Dave, what we'll do is we'll display it in our here, and when we have our 50th anniversary, people who come here will be taken up and shown you a fabulous bottle washer. And bottle filler, bottle filler. This one up here is a bottle washer. Uh, we're, we're looking to our right, and we've got a large, a uh, much larger uh, object and this is about the size of a triple garage, and it's bright yellow. We can't quite see what's going on inside it. That is a German-made Holstein and Capital bottle, wa- bottle washer. weighs about 42 tonnes, and we had to pick it up from Germany, from, uh, was Frankfurt Dortmund. or something? Dortmund. That's right, Dortmund. And we had it loaded onto one of our low loaders, and we set off for the port, and there was a seaman strike on. Bom, bom. And when you're hiring in a big low loader to take that, that's expensive. And we were told that Zeebrugge was closed. So we managed to stop the driver. 
with its escorts and we turned him back and he went back to Dewsburg. We discovered there was a ferry there. So we got on that, we crossed over to, um, we went into uh, New Haven, I think it was, which was still open, luckily. We then took that round to the other side, sailed across to Ireland, went into the Foyle, the River Foyle, and the top end of that is, can't remember now, at the foothills of the Mourne Mountains, and they had a small port there. We got it off, craned it off, put it onto the vehicle, took it up and put it into Cantrell and Cochrane and Belfast. And it really was an eventful journey. It was, again, one of those challenges that's always fun, especially if you win them. <laughs> is that why this particular picture is uh, so prominent? Uh, yes, the story was longer than that. There were two other ports involved and the ports were closing. We rented, we managed to find a uh, the Glen Clipper a small uh, ship with with catches just wide enough and long enough to accommodate. That was pure luck. And they were working with a fishing fleet off the north coast of Scotland. And we managed to persuade them, please, can you release this ship for us? We need to ship something from uh, east uh, from eastern England. I think it was, uh, I can't remember the port now, Workington, Workington across to uh, the Mourne Mountains. And this little ship came down, it fitted exactly, and we were off the hook. So we were lucky. One one of the things I'm quickly realising is that in order to do your work over the years, you must have had to learn a lot of other industries. Yes, you had to get involved in... Basically, it was all all about moving... You've got to check your sites. The most important thing is to go to the site where the thing is, have a look at it, measure it up, assess its weight, and then realise what is needed to mechanically dismantle it, what is necessary to electrically dismantle it, what is necessary to physically move it, what's necessary to crane it onto transport. Is the transport man enough to take it? Is it a wide load? Is it a high load? All those things, you tick boxes. And if you get them all right, it goes well. That is a typical example we're looking at there. That's the News of the World in Bouverie Street. I'll, I'll give a quick description. We're looking from Temple Lane down a side street, pretty narrow, I would say, That's and Bouverie we can street. see... Uh, it's which street? Uh, Bouverie Street. And we can see what looks like a, a, a truck being loaded up with uh, some sort of equipment. It's being covered in polythene, as is traditional under these circumstances. A number of other fellows are standing around having a look. No, this was a, a typical goss... A headliner mark one unit, or headliner mark two unit weighing 21 tonnes. Uh, when Murdoch bought the News of the World, he decided they'd need a new press and he bought a 12 unit uh, two folder Goss headliner mark two from Preston. And the old days was always you had to strip these things right down to nuts and bolts because the the press room is 12 metres below pavement level and the only way down is a lift or a lift shaft or even a letterbox, some way of getting this thing down and to do that the manufacturers had to strip it right down to nuts and bolts. So when it was commissioned they were invited up to Preston, red carpet was out, beautiful buffet lunch and all the rest of it, all the bosses were there and he signed it as accepted, they ran it up to 50,000 copies an hour and it was producing good readable coffee and they said fine Mr Murdoch is that okay and he signed for it it was and then he had to pay for it. Having paid for it they then said right we've now got to start stripping this right down to nuts and bolts We'll then ship it down in nuts and bolts down to the thing, and it'll take about 18 months to reassemble it. And they thought, hell, 
That's a long time having invested that money, earning nothing. Luckily enough, his uh, technical director, Ken Taylor, had seen us work in Berra's newspapers, Worcester, and he saw us put in the press, and he said, well, contact Vanguard and see what they can do. So we went up and said, unbelievably, we said, we need to knock a hole in your, f- in, in your Portland Stone facade in Bouverie Street, ten f- uh, 16 foot wide and 30 foot high, and... Uh, We'll have it in 45 days assembled. And wow, they said, I don't believe it. We said, well, we'll, 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 we'll bet you we can. And we got the order. And 45 days later, it was in and assembled. And the whole of Fleet Street saw that. And from that moment on, we started working for all of them. Right, yes, you couldn't want for a better advertisement <laughs> than that, could you? This was for uh, Lloyd's of London. They'd built this magnificent building in the city of London. And we were not involved in the first introdu- in the first uh, inquiry. We weren't even asked. Well, hold on. Uh, before, before we go further, the listener will want to know what we're looking at. So um, we, we're, we're looking at a 22-ton diesel generator set there. Which, if you haven't got a 22-ton diesel generator set at home, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you, but um, th- this looks like um, the, the engine from outer space. It's an enormous thing, uh, probably the size of a transit van. And, and it's digger. Uh, and digger, yes. And it's, being, and it's being held up by chains suspended over what might be a lift shaft. It is a lift shaft. Uh, they originally said they were going to build a 40-ton capacity hoist here and take everything down on the hoist, on the trailer, into the basement. Crazy idea. But anyway, that's how they wanted to do it. To do that, you have to test the hoist, and you have to test the hoist with with uh, 52 tons of wet test weights. Uh, so you put 40 tons on a trailer that weighs 12 tons, you reverse it on, and as they reversed it on, it started to go down, and the driver said, are you sure this is okay, mate? And they said, yeah, don't you worry, we'll put a bit more pressure on, and up she went. And then he said, come on a bit more, and a bit more, and the driver was getting more nervous, and he opened his cab door, luckily, they said, don't worry, mate, it'll be all right. They reversed in, and the whole thing kept going. The driver leapt out, and ten seconds later, the whole trailer was hanging down the lift shaft, 40 tons of pig iron crashing 12 metres into the basement, writing off the hoist. Big problem. This was due to open, the whole building was due to open, and all this heavy equipment had to go into the basement and be working. It was the heart of the company. Without that, the company wouldn't work. So the whole thing abruptly stopped they contacted the manufacturer and say come quick come quick and repair it they said it's not a repair job it's a redesign job could take anything up to six months and by then they were ballistic everybody was jumping up and down and luckily one of the engineers on site uh, from the builders had seen us work elsewhere and he said i know a company that might be able to help and luckily we own all this steel work all the bailey bridge and all the chain tackles all the electric hoists so we went up and had a look we said, no problems, come Monday, if you let us work over the weekend, we'll have this set up and we'll start putting the stuff in on Tuesday for you. And uh, once again, they looked at it and said, these people must be cuckoo. But no, we were there and we had the whole lot in the basement in, I think it took us about two weeks ahead of schedule. Well, the, the obvious question then is, what do you know that the company who was doing it before didn't know? What's the trick? I suppose we see round things. We think out of the box, not in the box. <laughs> so, so they were they were doing it in a conventional but ineffective well, way. Well, it was the easy way for them. It was the easy way if you can get it down on a trailer. I don't know how the hell they were going to get it off the trailer onto the ground, but uh, that was their problem, or would have been their problem. Uh, but it's much easier to offload up here and thing. And what we did there was had these three big beams. 
the Bailey Bridge sat on two of them. This one here was a freebie bean, and we moved that in close. Crane offloaded outside, skated it in on these, inched it up on these an inch, took the skates out. When they were out, we lowered down using these big electric hoists and these tackles. The hoists would go down 10 metres. We had to have these in just to take the last two metres down. These chains, yeah. 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 You'd be a formidable chess player, I suspect. Unfortunately, no. Williams are very good for really? chess players. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not great. I'm not great. I'd certainly like to see a match between the pair of you with this level of lateral thinking. We're out onto the fire escape and uh, looking at the frontage of Vanguard self-storage. I must say, I wouldn't have imagined what might be going on behind here. And uh, up on the turret, we see... Doctor Who's TARDIS and for, for those of you who I tried to explain to somebody the other day who's never seen Doctor Who what a TARDIS is and that was a complicated conversation why have you got a TARDIS up there Will? Um, it's a very good question actually I mean we're, we're known for putting things on the roof and a chap came with a TARDIS for sale one of the official TARDISes that was used um, by the BBC during the filming and he said this would look great on the roof and, and we agreed with him <laughs> And, and that's really the, the main reason. Because somebody said, please put this on your roof. Yeah, yeah, no, he said he's got it for sale. Do you want to put it on the roof? And we said, yeah, I think it would look good. And there's, a, I mean, there's obviously Doctor Who has a huge following. And the people that like Doctor Who really love it. So we thought it was something we should do. Well, this is one of the things that the company is known for, of course, as you were driving up the A40. It's a question of what does Vanguard have on the roof today? What sort of things have you had up there in the past? We've had... Uh the big 5.5-inch howitzer that's at the gate weighing eight tonnes, that was on the roof. We've had cars on the roof. When I bought a, an Aston Martin some years ago, that was on the roof for a few weeks. I have a helicopter. We bought a helicopter. Big mistake in this country. Don't ever buy a helicopter in business. We bought a Jet Ranger, a beautiful machine. Thought it was clever to get around country quick. And also we were starting a company called Skyhook Lifting. We were beginning to hire in big helicopters for lifting. We thought, we better have our own. And then we can boast that we're in Skyhook Lifting. And the moment we started flying around the country with that thing was the moment we started losing work. The British hate success and if you want to knock you off your perch if you're on a perch there's bound to be plenty of people out there take the opportunity of knocking you off your perch so uh, we managed to sell the helicopter we didn't lose any money on it lucky but it was a lesson learned and so we had the helicopter up there for a number of weeks really to keep it safe because this yard was packed and our big park down the back was parked with heavy vehicles and we lived in fear of something shunting it and if you if you touch a helicopter it costs a fortune to recertify it re this re that it really is expensive I'm especially excited by what you've got planned. I mean, let's face it, this is a lot of boys' toys going on up here. And uh, the, the big one we've got coming up, which sort of connects with the centenary of the First World War yeah, and, right. and, and with your own experience to some degree, I suppose. Yes, well, um, my father went through the First World War. Uh, he was a young lad and joined as a, a doctor. He'd qualified at Queen's University. Uh, went right the way through the First World War, beginning to end, wound up as a colonel with a DSO and an MC, mentioned in dispatches five times. And his younger brother, who was a classic scholar, joined from uh, Northern Ireland, from Belfast, and he joined the Cheshire Regiment. And the Cheshire Regiment was involved with the then tank regiment, B Squadron, B Company of the then tanks, uh, on an attack on Messine Ridge. And we've got Pa's diary and Uncle Edwin's diary and married the two together. And it's a, a, a scary story of uh, how Edwin used to meet Pa because Messine and Ypres are reasonably close together and Pa used to go and have dinner with them. 
and in the diary, the, the discussion between the two, and come the 7th of June 1917, was the attack on Messine Ridge. Messine Ridge was a place where the Croats, the Bosch, had um, a terrific view of the British lines, and they could literally spot artillery shells, and they had to be shifted, and to head out to the east to recover the, the ground lost and they decided they were going to attack Messine Ridge and they very cleverly built 19 thumping rate mines under the German lines some of the tunnels were 200 feet long with hundreds of tons of explosive under there and at 3.10 on the 7th of June they decided to attack and they attacked with my uncle's regiment and B Company of the tank regiment and they attacked up just before they attacked they let all the mines off and there was a colossal explosion the noise and the vibration could be felt in the southern counties of England. It was next to an atomic bomb, if you know what I mean. They say that something like 20,000 Germans were killed that night on that explosion, and the tanks managed to get through, and for the first time it was a Mark IV tank. And when I was in the tank regiment, I was in the 5th Royal Tank Regiment, and the fifth letter of the alphabet had to be an E. And um, I won't kind of go into the side story of that one. You're, you're talking about naming tanks, right? <clears throat> naming tanks, yes. All tanks had to be named. It, it happened just before the Messine Ridge. One of the one of the tank commanders there decided he was going to call his tank uh, Bravo something or other. And uh, it then rolled on from there. And the fifth tanks had to be E. And when the sign writer came to me, I had a troop of Conqueror tanks after being in the tanks for about a, a year. And he said, I've come to put your name on the side of the tank. And I said, fine, what is it? And he said, look down his list, he said, e, 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 there we are, Enchantress. I said, there is no way my crew and I are going to war in the Enchantress because I know what the enemy would like to do to Enchantress and none of us want to be in it when it happens. So he laughed and he said, what are you going to call it? So I said, we'll call it a name that we used to use a few years ago as kids when we had these beat-up old cars up in Highgate. And one of the lads fancied himself as a linguist and he decided that El Abu was Hebrew for a fart. And, in fact, it isn't. <laughs> it's nothing to do with being a fart, but that was it. So I said, we'll call it El Abu. So two days later, the colonel was going through the tank part, and he said, Mac, that's an interesting name. What's that? And I crossed my fingers and said, that is a little village outside El Alamein. He said, that's very appropriate. Well done. So I said, fine, that's good. So that was called El Abu. So I've gone, I did a bit of a Ronnie Corbett there and got away from the reason for <laughs> putting an E in front of so we're calling the tank that's going up there is Edwin in memory of my my uncle who would have been on the Battle of Messine Ridge well I can't wait to see it up there so that's one of those old land ships with the, the bit jutting out at the yeah, top front yeah. so it can crawl over the land a kind of, rom- a kind of rhombus shape ok well that's to come and we're heading into the main part of the building now Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and with me today are Mac McCullough and Will McCullough. We're at Vanguard Holdings, and well, we've we've just entered the warehouse here at Vanguard, and um, it's it's quite a, a various set of items that I see before me. To our right, we have one of those big silver trailers. It looks as though it might have come from the 1950s, maybe. It's uh, the sort of thing that you see in the desert, gleaming. It's got that 50s look about it, but it's also got neon lights inside they clearly will light up and say on air so i'm uh, i'm fairly confident this is a broadcast uh, unit of, of some sort to the left well what warehouse doesn't have a clock tower inside it we can also see in front of us a double decker bus and to the right there we've got a jet it could be could be a harrier could be something else uh, what, what are we looking at here will You've got a, a Hawker Hunter up on the top right, and below that there's an English Electric Lightning. They're just all part of the collection of toys, really, that Mac has collected over the years. Yes, we've got a, a car from the uh, 60s tucked away. Over, I mean, it's a huge warehouse we're in, so there's plenty of space for, for all these toys. But let's start by saying something about the planes over there. Yeah, so the top plane, the Hawker Hunter, is, is the WT555, which is, which is an incredibly important airframe. It was the first into the RAF, and it was flown by squadron leader Sir Neville Duke back in the in the fifties, who's who's the most famous pilot pilot of the day. And it's a it's a piece that Mac bought at auction. Yes, we bought that at an auction for nine thousand pounds, and brought it back here, and took our helicopter off the roof that occasion and put our aircraft onto the roof, and it got a lot of interest. And at the Duxford, RAF Duxford, there was a September air show the following year, and they asked could we help advertise, which we did. And uh, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but we put a Spitfire onto the roof for that. They, for the first time ever, had to close the gates when they'd got 46, or was it 36,000 people into Duxford, and they couldn't take any more. And it was terrific. We were up there, and every half hour on the loudspeaker, they say, we've got Vanguard at Western Avenue to thank for the crowds that are here today. So it obviously gets a lot of, a lot of viewers. Do you ever get <clears throat> negative reaction? I, I know certainly everything I've heard has been positive and excited about what's going on the roof next. Do you ever have people who feel alarmed about the sight of a jet or uh, something else on the roof? No, we don't, funnily enough. I mean, we've been doing it for long enough now. We bought this building in 1975, and we've been putting stuff on the roof ever since then. It's very, very rare we get anybody giving us any negative. Often the, the normal question is, what's going up next? I don't think we've ever had any major problems there at all. No, you get the occasional real plane buff. You know, someone that knows everything about planes that might say it shouldn't be up on the roof exposed to the weather. But we only have it up for a couple of months every year. And for the rest of it, it's, it's here, it's secure, it's dry. It's very happy and well looked after in our, in our warehouse. And we also let any plane buffs come and have a look at it. So we often get, probably once a week, we'll get an email from someone who says, can I come and have a look? Let's do exactly that. We'll, we'll just head over to the back of the warehouse here. We're heading past the forklift trucks. I know we're going to be talking about those as well in just a second, but the plane as we see it here, and, and uh, indeed both of the planes, are denuded of their wings. No, we've got the two aircraft, as you can see, the whole 100, the upper one. This was an English electric lightning. We bought that almost as a mistake, not quite. Having bought the Lightning, the RAF said, ah, well, we know Vanguard buy aircraft, send them a a bid, a sealed bid, not an auction, a sealed bid. And this aircraft was up in RAF Bamford on the northeast coast, and it was for sale. And I said we didn't really want it. Offer a £1,000. 
So we sent off a thousand pounds, and much to my amazement, three months later, the phone rang, who's coming to collect your English electric lightning? And I thought, God, <laughs> what are we going to do with it? Well, yes, what was, what was the thinking? I'm not sure I understand the thinking behind this. You didn't really want it, didn't really need it. What, what did you think you were going to do with it? It's a magnificent aircraft. It's a historic aircraft. It was the fa- by far the fastest interceptor made by the RAF for a long time. It would go up through the sound barrier, one man at the, at the control, to a hell of a height, and it was designed especially to combat the Russian bear bombers that were co- would have come in high up. And they have two missiles on the side, um, fire street missiles, and on the left-hand side you'll see one missile and you'll see written on it, Vanguard's Darn Time Eliminator. <laughs> and the front half we take up to exhibitions like the machine tool exhibition, like the brewery exhibition, and we put this on our stand and tell everybody we're the darn time specialist. If you want to move this lot, give us a shout and it'll take no time at all. And that's why we have a very fast jet fighter on the thing and sales work well. I just want you to consider, listener, that I'm talking to a man who has a TARDIS on his roof and a missile in his warehouse. (laughs) Of course, that's not the biggest danger in here, depending on how you turn this up. We've just walked past the uh, forklift trucks. In fact, they're pretty dangerous themselves. Yes, forklift trucks we found very early on, and it's known throughout industry that probably the forklift truck is the most dangerous thing in the factory or in the works. There are more fatalities, more crushed feet, more seriously injured people than enough caused by normally the bad driving of a forklift truck or somebody riding on a forklift truck. If you have a look at this one on the front of the forks, it says, never ride on the forks. If you do and survive, you're fired. It is that important. People think it's clever to ride on the forks to give them a bit of a lift up onto a loading bank. It is not. On the top, the mast comes out, and it's like a guillotine. And if some, it looks easy to hold on there when you're riding on a forklift truck. The moment that mast moves, five fingers or ten fingers have gone. You've lost them all. Uh, if you stand, that, that forklift truck weighs seven tons. If your foot goes on that solid wheels, they're not rubber, solid wheels, you'll never walk again, or you'll certainly walk with a serious limp. So they're dangerous things. Nobody should ever ride on them other than the, the driver. Uh, they should be driven at a sensible speed. They have a habit of turning over. A young lad gets over and turns them over. Our first accident, our first fatal accident, was a way back now, uh, about five, six, seven years after we started, when we were working up at a factory in Hemel Hempstead, where a young lad was there meant helping us take the guarding off machinery and carrying it outside and putting it on a lorry. Guarding weighs nothing. It's thin tin. It's the guarding that you unbolt. You have to unbolt it before you get to the meat of the machine. And he fancied himself as a driver. He was told on day one, get off it and stay off it. It was a five-ton forklift truck. The following day... The factory we were working for saw him on, on one of theirs and he said, listen, son, get off that forklift truck. We don't want to see you again. On the very last day, he was back on our five-tonne five forklift truck. He reversed out into the yard and there was a young lad roping and sheeting his trailer. And on the back of a the trailer, there's a solid bit. And he just got it down. His head was down there and the forklift truck crushed his head flat. And uh, it was a horror, horror story. The health and safety made our life bloody miserable. They did prosecute us, but they lost the case because the judge ruled that we were a responsible company. We'd written enough about it. We'd written safety books about it. And uh, the health and safety had to admit surrender. 
but it was a nasty accident, but it taught everybody a lesson that these things look innocent, they think they're fun, they think they're a bit of a dodgem, but they're not. They are killers and maimers. Can I ask you on a, on a personal level how you cope with as, as an, an employer and that being the first time that something of that uh, level of seriousness has happened? How did you process that yourself? We're very hot on health and safety. We've written our books on health and safety, uh, books that are often people in the industry say, can we have copies? Because we've gone into it. We're, we're sharp-end people. We, we, okay, we started off just three of us in overalls moving machinery. But the idea is that you've got to get across the sharp end story of how dangerous things are. <clears throat> we scan the magazines, the trade magazines, for accidents at other factories. Not us, but, well, us and many others. And you can see an obvious reason why somebody's got hurt. So we do a memo and it goes into the wage packets. Like, make sure that you are wearing goggles when you're welding. Um, do not attempt to weld without proper goggles, uh, etc. Wear safety boots at all times. And these go onto the wage packets and they have to sign for them. And that's the best thing you can do. We have got two cases at the moment that go way back 20, 25 years, where the northern people are always making claims. That sounds awfully regional, doesn't it? But unfortunately, it's a fact. And um, we've got two who are claiming deaf- deafness. <laughs> the sound effects are playing into the story here. Can you hang on a minute with the hammering? That doesn't help either. <laughs> so, so, so there's very unlikely claim that anyone would be suffering. <laughs> We've had these two claims claiming they were got deaf at work. And as I mentioned before to you, we keep records of all the jobs on every memo ever we send, and we keep it in file. And these guys, both claiming, went back 20, 25 years, and we dug out their file, and they'd signed for a memo about wearing earplugs if there's something noisy. And if you're working at a noisy factory, make sure you either have earplugs, because they're kept in our former's van. If not, and you can't find them, go and speak to the manager of the company, who will also have earplugs. And he signed for that memo. So these are in their file. So when these solicitors write to you, they're always claiming you didn't do this, you didn't do the other. Normally five pages of what we didn't do. Um, And unfortunately, the things we did do were the ones that got us off the hook. And I would recommend anybody who's got uh, a business like that, try to keep records of your employees, try to give them memos about health and safety all the time, make sure you keep files on them. In both our cases, we warned them, you're going to waste our time and it's going to cost you money. And we've invoiced both of them for about £1,200 for the time burnt up so far. And if they want any further information from us, it'll be charged at X pounds per hour. It sounds as though you've got to be uh, right across the board with your business. You've got to be terribly preemptive of uh, all sorts of things, whether it, whether that's a case of keeping records and making sure that the right information and the right bases have been covered, or whether it's about protecting other people's kit. And of course, that brings us to the self storage business as as it is now. What are the sort of the major things that you need to think about as somebody running a, a self storage business? Well, I mean, I think self-storage is very different to the old business in that it is, it's obviously much safer. You know, apart from forklift trucks are still present, but as long as you keep forklift trucks away from the majority of customers, you should be fine. I mean, in terms of the self-storage business, it's really you've got to keep it clean and tidy and make people feel comfortable that, you know, this is a safe place for their stuff because obviously they, they care about it and that's why they're trying to store it. I've had occasion in between houses usually to stuff my stuff into a self-storage unit and very 
convenient it's <laughs> been too it was interesting actually what you were saying before we started recording that with living space being at a premium mm. in the capital every nook and cranny and attic space and spare room and all that who has a box room anymore you know it's uh, there's a family of three living in there uh, which means that everybody's got to put their, their stuff somewhere else and when I did that I discovered that there's quite a few little businesses going on in those places as well so it's not just about domestic storage always there's there's uh, all sorts of other stuff going on in there what sort of stuff have you encountered it's a real mix i mean we're probably 50 50 between domestic so you know people that have just domestic belongings really you know an old tv or some old photos or, or documents that they need to keep ranging straight through to to businesses that are very active and it's really a hub for small businesses you find a lot of small businesses you know they want to be able to have the flexibility to trade up or trade down in terms of the amount of space that they use without taking a lease on a on a decent sized warehouse um, and self-storage offers them that flexibility do you ever i mean i, su- I suppose what i suspect but I don't know whether there's any foundation. In fact, I suspect there are people bending the rules as far as they'll possibly go from time to time. Well, we've had... You have a few interesting ones. We had... um We had one customer that was uh, bringing over some cutting agent for cocaine and storing it in their unit. Um, And we had a... We had a drugs bust actually here so we had the police were using our offices and filming them as they came and went to pick up you know this cutting agent so it wasn't the actual cocaine itself but it was obviously involved in it um, and they ended up taking them down actually wow that so wasn't what i was expecting <laughs> do you ever get i've noticed one place i stored stuff in i've got the impression someone was attempting to live there but i wasn't sure if i was if i was misreading that well i think probably it does happen um, we don't operate 24 hours, so we find it safer to operate between the hours of 7 and 7. I mean, most people that want to come to their unit at 2 o'clock in the morning probably aren't that savoury anyway. So, you know, we do shut down for the night. The whole building is completely locked and alarmed, so there's no way that anyone could, could live in their unit. Mm, mm. And obviously you've got to protect against all the stuff we expect. I noticed, Mac, when you were looking at some uh, documents earlier, there were in big filing cabinets, all of which said fireproof on them. Mm-hmm. And I presume uh, fire must be your worst nightmare, mustn't it? It's every self-storage man's worst nightmare of fire, yes. But luckily we've got, uh, here we've got all the fire alarms, we've got uh, plenty of fire extinguishers around the place, and we're very tight on what people store. The first thing, we they've got to fill in documentation. If they sign a contract stating that they are not storing any inflammable goods, they're not storing any food, they're not storing any perishable goods, they're not storing any liquids, especially explosives, especially petrol, especially yeah, fireworks, that's another one. We avoid it all, uh, and they know. And when they're offloading their goods and putting them in store, we tend to keep an eye on what's going into the store. And if we're suspicious, we say, hang on just a minute, what actually is in that barrel? It could be a barrel full of fertiliser or something which we're not interested in. Um, so we're very careful. We've got to be. But it is, it is one's worst fear. I suppose there's a suspicion in my mind that the transition that the business has made from those early days moving enormous plant machinery projects to something which I suppose is a little more staid and a little more predictable and maybe even less glamorous. Can I risk saying that? Um, Do you miss the excitement of day one? No, I had a thoroughly enjoyable time for up until the end of the 1990s. Uh, It was fun. It was high risk. We had a fantastic bunch of men. Nothing was too much trouble. And it was great. But since then, the legislation has got worse from a point of view of trying to trade. 
they have these uh, okay fine you start off with things like the working hour directive then you have all the health and safety regulations and then a whole host of other stuff that shackles you basically so a lot of the fun's gone and okay self-storage is fine it's a steady earner as long as you do it properly and as William says we're hot on security we don't believe in the 24-hour business because the police are very anti because that's just when they would have a go at you and we have a fantastic bunch of clients so we're very fortunate that sounds like a good note to come to a close on but there is one other thing that I wanted to drop in as we're thinking about the the 50-year commemorations and I know there's uh, there's lots going on around that one of the things we've mentioned already was Fleet Street and the the printing presses and I know you've dealt with both Murdoch and uh, Maxwell and and maybe it's just uh, worth uh, finishing because I know as an employer you've how many staff have you at the moment we're down to 50 only 50 (laughs) which is quite a number to be taken care of and of course you've uh, lots of people have come and gone over the years I'm sure but there was a particularly interesting episode where you were thinking about unionization and and so forth I wondered if we could just revisit those days and, and talk about that finally yes in the early days there was industrial anarchy in the country it was unbelievable. By three o'clock in the afternoon, 50% of the, of the country were probably uh, legless, and there was no way of controlling it. If you accused a chap, uh, and he obviously was absolutely paralytic, the union official would say, can't you see this poor man is ill? And you'd say, no, he's not, he's absolutely legless. Don't you argue with me, it will all be out on strike. And it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And when we first started, we couldn't get into any factory without a union card and I keep my union card and it's still valid and it, we opened it on the um, on the let's have a look at it there we are it started on the 8th of August 1964 Brother McCullough was in the union so what happened was we decided we better we don't want to fight them we don't want to fall out with them but we just want to be left alone to get on with our job So we started this business of when we employed people, like you would come along and we'd say, right, can you think for yourself? And you'd naturally say, yes. We said, we've got a job for you. And they said, what's that? You're going to be a shop steward. Oh, no, I left so-and-so to get away from all that rubbish. Don't you worry, you're going to be your own shop steward. You'll be paid better than the union rate. Uh, If you've got a problem anywhere, uh, you think we're paying you too much or maybe too little the wife spent the rent money or you've lost the money or you've got trouble at home or any problems at all you come and see us you don't need somebody else to think for you because you've told us you can think for yourself right so we eventually had 470 people working for us and we never had one single dispute and that worked a treat that worked a treat i don't think we ever had a real dud working for us they all as soon as they got here they realized it was a family business and we expected a day's work for a day's pay and they all worked their butt off and I'm sure that's an ethos. I feel, I feel safe asserting that that's an ethos you intend to uh, see through, Will. Yeah, of course. I mean, every, everyone, everyone knows us. You know, any, any, any member of the team can come in and see Mac and I whenever they want, and they know that, and they do an awful <laughs> lot, which is good. And I don't think we're deterring anybody from visiting uh, with the tone of today's broadcast. If you uh, happen to be on the A40, I think you just keep an eye out for the TARDIS stroke tank stroke fighter jet, whatever it happens to be up there, and you'll know that's Vanguard. We should probably plug your website before we part. Oh, yeah. We're at uh, www.vanguardstorage.co.uk is for the self-store. Our parent company, Vanguard Holdings, is vanguardholdings.co.uk. And if you've got any spare fighter jets that you don't want, you know what to do with them. 
in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Mac and Will McCullough, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Coming along. My heart aches for some far off place, no and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Mac McCullough and Will McCullough. Thanks to, to Bruno Perez, Bernie Barkley and Mark Barr. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.